Open your Bibles to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. We are entering an amazing, amazing passage of Scripture. One that one commentator calls the most amazing chapter in all of the Bible. In John chapter 17, uh, we get to behold an inner Trinitarian conversation between Jesus and his Father. But not only do we have the privilege of seeing how Jesus talks with his Father, not only do we have the privilege of seeing this communication within the Trinity of the Godhead, but in this passage, we see Jesus Christ praying for us. This morning, we get to behold Jesus' prayer for you. Do you ever wonder if other people are praying for you? And if they are, what exactly they are praying? I know there are certain people in my life that are continually, continually and constantly lifting me and my family up to the Lord before prayer. And it, it is an encouraging thing. It is a motivating thing. It is a challenging thing to be aware that people are bringing you to the Father. It's, it's a motivating thing to know what exactly is being prayed for you. Oh, for example, if someone were to come up to me and say, Adam, I've been, I've been lifting you up to God and I've been praying for you. I've been praying that you would grow up. That you would stop acting like a child. That knowledge of that prayer would be a motivating thing as opposed to being ignorant that the prayer was ever happening. I hope that in this body that, that prayer is happening for the saints in, in this building and in this church. But not just that the prayer is happening, that, that we are aware that we are being prayed for because it's a motivating thing. Well, in this passage, we get to behold not just anyone lifting us up for prayer, but our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we don't just know that he prays for us, but we know what he prays for us. Let's read this passage and then we will unfold it and unpackage it together. We're going to be in John chapter 17. We're going to get a running start in verses 6 through 12 and then find the, the bulk of this prayer in the rest of the chapter. So let's start reading in chapter 6. You can follow along in your Bibles. Jesus is speaking when he says, I have manifested your name to the men, the disciples whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they have come to know everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. 
And I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. The name which you have given me. That they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. Which you have given me. And I guarded them so that not one of them perished. But the son of perdition. So that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you. That these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made known your name to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them." It's an amazing passage in which Jesus lifts up those who would believe in him. As we break this down this morning, I want us to see this passage as six of Jesus' prayers for his followers. Six of Jesus' prayers for his followers. As we make our way through this passage and, and through these, these prayers, these requests by Jesus to the Father for his followers, we, we first encounter verses 6 through 10, which really function as, as an introduction to the request that Jesus is about to give. The, these function as kind of the, the preface to the requests that are coming. And, and Jesus introduces these requests by, by talking about the disciples that are immediately surrounding him. Jesus talks about his work with the disciples that have spent Jesus' ministry with him. In verses 6 through 8, Jesus talks about that when he says, I've manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. These men were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Jesus says, I've, I've made your word known to them. I've made the truth known to these men, these disciples whom you have given to me and they believed me. 
Not only do they, do they believe me, but they obey me. Look at verse 7 and 8. Now they have come to know everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. Jesus is talking about his ministry with his disciples. And how he has faithfully presented them with the truth. And how they have believed that truth. And so Jesus says, Father, what I'm about to ask you, I'm asking on their behalf. I'm asking for these men that you have given to me who have believed the truth that I have faithfully presented to them. They have heard it and they have accepted it. They have received it and they are following it. So Father, I lift up the following requests on their behalf. Look at verse 9. I ask this on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So Jesus clarifies that the requests that he's about to ask the Father are not given on behalf of the world as a whole. These requests are not for all of humanity. These requests are not for all of the world. Jesus particularly points out that these are for my followers. Immediately he's thinking these are for my disciples. These requests I ask on behalf of the men who have received my word. Well, what Jesus is about to ask again, is immediately requested on behalf of his disciples. But I want you to look down to verse 20. Because in verse 20, it draws our attention to the fact that these requests are not just for his immediate disciples. Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. So in verse 9, Jesus says, Father, I'm asking you this not on behalf of the whole world, but on the behalf of those who have received my message. In verse 20, he continues to clarify, Father, I'm asking you this on behalf, not even of these men only, but of all those who will believe. And Jesus is fully aware that all those who would believe would believe based on the word that his disciples would preach. So much of the upper room discourse in John 14 through 17 is given specifically with Jesus' disciples immediately and only in mind. But Jesus is fully aware that it's based on the word of these disciples that the gospel is going to go forth. And we see that recorded in the book of Acts as these apostles take the gospel to the nations. And so Jesus extends this prayer to not just apply to those right there in that context who have heard him, but to all who would believe based on the word of his disciples. In other words, Jesus is praying not just for his disciples, but for you. And so in this passage... There is massive, massive significance for us every day. In which we can find awareness that Jesus prayed for me. Jesus prayed the following requests for me. He made the following statements with with all believers in mind. And, And if that's you... If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. If you've repented of your sin... This is you. Jesus prays for you. 
In verse 11, Jesus sets the significance for what he's about to request. Indeed, the the reason that he needs to request these things is found in verse 11. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world. Stop there for just a second. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world with an awareness that he's about to leave. Jesus, when he says this, is still in the world, but he's about to leave and he knows it. He started verse, uh, ch- chapter 17 with the awareness that his time of glorification is at hand. So he says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. Jesus is about to request these things because he's leaving, but they're staying. Jesus has faithfully tended to his disciples while he was here, but his time of departure has come. And so he asks these things in anticipation that he is gone, but they remain. And can I tell you that 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 exact scenario still applies today. Jesus is right now in heaven at the right hand of God, and yet we are here on earth. And so what Jesus prays in anticipation of that truth applies not only to his disciples, but to every one of us. So Jesus prays for all of his followers. His first request is this. His first prayer is keep them faithful. Keep them faithful. That's the first request that he lifts to the Father on behalf of his followers. It's found in verses 11 and 12. Jesus says, I'm no longer in the world and yet they themselves are in the world and so I come to you. Holy Father, Keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. When Jesus asked the Father to keep his followers in his name, uh, that, that, that word carries a certain level of significance. Uh, someone's name, as Jesus refers to it here, actually encompasses all of who they are, especially their character. Uh, I want to draw your eyes up to, to verse 6 in chapter 17. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the men who you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Jesus says in verse 6, Father, I've delivered delivered your name to these men. And when Jesus says that, he's not simply saying, I told them what your name is. He's not just saying, I introduced you to them. When Jesus says, I gave them your name, he's, he's saying that he is explaining the significance and all that matters to us about the Father. He delivered to them his, his, his character and who he is and what they need to know about him. All of that is included when he says, I gave them your name. He says, I gave them your name and they obeyed. So his name is not just his title, but it's all that is included in the information that they need to know about God. For they obeyed it. And so when Jesus says back down in in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name. He's saying, Father, keep them in you. Keep them in who you are. Keep them in your character. Keep them in you, Father. Keep them in your name. In other words, what Jesus is asking when he says this is, Father, keep these men. And by extension, all of my followers. Keep them from turning away. Keep them from turning their backs on you. Father, keep them faithful. 
supported by what he continues to say in verse 12. He talks about how they've remained in his name, remained faithful to this, this point. Look at verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them and not one of them perished but the son of perdition so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So, so Jesus says, Father, up till this point, I have been working to keep them in your name. I have been working to keep them faithful. I have been working to keep them from turning away from you. And not one of them turned, Jesus says, except for the son of perdition. When, when Jesus says that, it's a reference to Judas and what, what's about to happen. In fact, Judas has already left the upper room. He's, he's on his way to go and betray Jesus. Jesus says, Father, I have, I have protected them. I've guarded them so that they would keep your name except for Judas, the son of perdition. And that was done so that the scripture would be fulfilled. It was always the plan that Judas would betray Jesus. So Jesus says, Father, I have done this so far. But remember, verse 11, Jesus has done this, but Jesus is leaving. And the disciples are staying. So Jesus says, Father, now I come to you and I ask you, keep them in your name. Protect them and guard them. Keep them faithful. interesting if we were to ask why is it so important why is it so significant that we remain faithful there's a lot of reasons that it's important that we remain faithful but Jesus points out one that, that we may not have initially guessed draw your attention to the end of verse 11 Jesus says holy father keep them in your name the name which you have given me that they may be one as we are You know why Jesus wants us to remain faithful? Do you know why Jesus asks God to keep us faithful, to keep us from turning away? That we may be one. Isn't that fascinating? That what Jesus is thinking of as he's thinking of the faithfulness of his disciples and by extension his followers is that they would remain united. That, that if they were to turn their backs on Jesus, to turn their backs on God, that it would create division in the body of Christ. And Jesus is so opposed to division in the body of Christ. He's going to repeat this request a little bit later and we'll dive more into it there. But, but even when he's thinking about them remaining faithful, it, it's it's. For the purpose of unity. Because if someone would turn their back, it would cause division. They, they are united by the name of God. The body of Christ is united by that claim of faith, by that allegiance to God. They're united by Jesus Christ himself. And so when Jesus says, Father, keep them in your name so that they may remain one, he's fully aware that what unites us is our, our obedience and our commitment to God. It's, it's his name that unites us. And so he says, keep them in your name. That they may be one. We'll get into this again later, but the extent of the unity of the body of Christ that comes from this claim, this obedience, this faithfulness, is that we would be one 
even as Jesus and God are one. That's the extent of the unity. Jesus is going to repeat this later, but but at the end of verse 11, he says that they may be one even as we are. Jesus' first request is that God would keep them faithful. Now, as we walk through these requests, I want to be aware that when Jesus prays this, it's incredibly significant. But Jesus' prayer for us does not ignore or negate or remove any responsibility on our behalf to remain faithful. Jesus is praying, Father, keep them faithful. And so as we read that, it's it's not as if we approach it and say, well, I guess we'll see if God keeps me faithful. No, rather, we approach this text with the awareness that we could only remain faithful by God's grace. It's only God's grace that could ever enable us to be faithful. And so we strive in faithfulness. We strive to, to not turn away, to not turn our back on what we have professed, but to remain faithful with the full knowledge that only God can bring that about in our lives. And so we strive and we press on in obedience with the awareness that Jesus prayed that we would be able to do this. That he indeed entrusted us to God the Father to carry this out in our lives. So he says, God, keep them faithful. And as we read that, I hope we find motivation with the knowledge that Jesus prayed this on our behalf to remain faithful, and to know that by God's grace in our life, we can do it. That God can work that in our lives. In fact, all of these requests need to be seen through that. That the fact that Jesus asked it does not negate any personal responsibility, but it brings the awareness that we can only obey by the grace of God. And so let's transition to Jesus' second prayer for us. His first prayer is keep them faithful. His second prayer is keep them from the enemy. Keep them from the enemy. This is found in verses 13 through 16. Jesus says, but now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world so that they may have joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word and the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. The central request in this passage is that God the Father would keep us, that he would protect us from the evil one. In verse 13, It's interesting, we we approach that request of being kept from the evil one in verse 13 by by Jesus saying that that the message that he's about to give brings joy. He says, I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have joy made full in themselves. Jesus says, "I'm, I'm asking this of you with the awareness that the message that I've delivered brings joy. It brings joy in the life of those who hear me. It brings joy in the life of those who believe me. Jesus says, I've given them your world. I've given them your word. I've given them this message that brings about joy. And yet the world has hated them. 
So this message that we are called to believe, that his disciples have believed, and that all of Jesus' followers will believe, that message brings joy, but that's not it. That message brings hatred from the world. Indeed, the the joy that that message produces may even invite more hatred from the world. Jesus knows this. He's aware of this, and he knows the reason for it. He says the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. The message that Jesus has preached alienates Jesus' followers from the world. The message that Jesus preaches drives a wedge between the world and the followers of Jesus. As a body of believers, it's important for us to be aware constantly that the world is fundamentally opposed to the message of the gospel. And by extension, that the world is fundamentally opposed to the followers of Christ. And it's actually not that hard to understand. The follower of Christ is not of the world. Everyone else is of the world. And so that change in identity invites opposition. That change in allegiance, that that change in who you are invites hatred from the world. And Jesus just assumes that it's going to be true. They're not of the world. The others are of the world. And so obviously the world will hate them because, because they're different. They're fundamentally different and they're fundamentally opposed to one another. So just a conclusion to draw on the side based on what Jesus is saying here is that unity with the world does not bring joy. Jesus says, my message alienates them from the world, but it gives them joy. By implication then, can I just encourage you that that, that unity with the world is not a source of joy? It's not. You could go to Romans chapter 12 that that Pastor Rick has been been preaching through and look at at being transformed rather than conformed to the world, that that is our call and that we must maintain the awareness that we are brought joy when we are obedient to that, when we are not like the world but are being transformed from the world. Jesus is aware that that is happening in every life of his followers. And so he says the world will hate them. Because they are not of the world now. As Jesus is saying those things, there's seemingly a really easy solution to the problem that Jesus is presenting. They're not of the world. The world hates them. Pull them out of the world. Deliver them to heaven. But that's not at all what Jesus wants. And that is at the heart of this request. Jesus says, even though all that I have just said is true, look at verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Jesus says, Father, the world will hate them because of the message that they have believed that brings joy. But don't take them out of the world. That They are in the world for a very specific purpose. And Jesus has been talking about that purpose immediately with his disciples for some time now. About how they're going to carry the message of the gospel to the nations. 
Jesus wants his disciples in the world. They serve a very specific purpose in the world. And I suggest to you that we do too. Our role to a certain extent is different than the apostles. But we're still left in the world. God does not redeem someone and pull them from the world. And it's because these things are still true. That, that we are carrying the gospel and, and functioning as a, as a church, as a body under the head of Christ. And, and all of those things are a testimony to the world that hates us. So Jesus says, don't pull them out. No, no, keep them in. Keep them in the world. But Father, as they are in the world, protect them from the evil one. Protect them. Keep them from the enemy. The enemy in Jesus' mind here includes all of Satan's devices, all temptations, the enemy's desires for you, the enemy's attacks against you. Jesus says, Father, protect them. He knows the opposition. He knows the temptation. He knows what those will face when the world is opposed to them because no one, no one knew that better than Jesus. No one experienced that more than Jesus, especially in anticipation of what he's about to endure in the cross. So he says, Father, they're going to be in the world. Don't take them out, but protect them while they're in the world. That's what Jesus prays for his disciples and by extension, it's what Jesus prays for us. Not that we would isolate ourselves. Not that we would have no contact with the world. He's aware that we'll be in the world. But that we would be kept from evil. That we would be protected from temptation. Let's draw our attention once again. There's a call here. <laughs> to, to flee the enemy. To flee the enemy with the full awareness that only by God's grace can we ever resist temptation. That only by God's grace can we ever stay away. Can we ever be kept from the enemy. That's only the work of God in our lives. And so that does not eliminate our striving. It motivates it to know that Jesus prayed this for us. We submit to God. and We resist the devil. Jesus prays, keep them from the enemy because they're not of this world. Look at verse 16. They are not of this world even as I am not of this world. We, this is not our home. We don't ultimately and eternally belong here. We are not of the world. But I'm amazed and I'm floored at, at, at how much Jesus says we are not of the world. You know how little we are to be of the world? As little as Christ was of the world. That's what he says in verse 16. He says, they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Your allegiance to the world is, is as minimal as Christ was. <laughs> a 
as much as Christ is associated with the world, we are to be associated with the world. As much as he would have called this his home, we are to call this his home. And and, and what he says is it's not. I am not of the world and in the same way they aren't either. You no more belong here than Jesus did. That's just incredible. That Jesus' view of his followers, of his disciples and his followers, is is that they don't belong here just as much as he doesn't. So God prays, keep them. Protect them. Keep them from the enemy. See this terminology elsewhere in scripture. We are, we are strange. We're in a strange land. And as such, Jesus gives yet another request. Let's look, at, let's look at the third request, the third prayer by Jesus for his followers. Number three, make them righteous with your word. Make them righteous with your word. Verses 17 through 19. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. Jesus uses the word repeatedly in those verses. He uses the word sanctify. It means, it means to be made more holy to be made more righteous, ultimately to be made more like Jesus. When Jesus lifts this prayer, this prayer in verse 17, sanctify them in your truth, Jesus is asking the Father to make, make my followers more holy, make them more righteous, make them more like me, sanctify them. Increase their obedience, increase their faith, increase their love for you, increase their, their love for one another. Again, we know none of us are sanctified apart from the grace of God. This does not minimize our striving. This does not minimize our pursuit of sanctification, but that we maintain the awareness that that we pursue, we strive, we run with faithfulness with the knowledge that we can only be obedient by the grace of God who works that about in our lives. Jesus says, Father, sanctify them. But I want us to be aware of the tool by which Jesus asked the Father to sanctify his followers. Sanctify them, verse 17, in the truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Use the truth to make them more holy. Unless there be any confusion about what the truth is, Jesus clarifies in a wonderfully succinct and simple statement of what the truth is. The end of verse 17, your word is truth. If I can translate that for us. Jesus is asking God to sanctify us with the Bible. This is his word. This is his truth. And when Jesus says, sanctify them with your truth, sanctify them with your word, this is it. 
Jesus is saying, Father, use your word, use your truth to change them, to make them more holy, to sanctify them, to make them more like me. Change them with your word. If I can steal and borrow from our pastor, this this is the read your Bible more sermon. This, This is the read your Bible more verse. This is the Bible is the tool that God uses to sanctify us. You don't have a prayer in sanctification without the word of God. You don't have a hope in being made more holy without God's word. It's the tool that he uses. And there's certainly other tools that God uses to bring about righteousness and holiness in our life. But it all revolves around scripture. It all revolves around his word. Outside of his word, we don't have a prayer in sanctification. And so Jesus says, Father, make them holy, sanctify them, make them righteous with your word. The word is truth. And the truth is your word. It's amazing. I, th- I, th- I, hope, I hope most of us here know this. That the Bible is the tool with which God sanctifies us. And yet, so often, so often, there is struggle and difficulty in spending meaningful time in the world and the word on a regular basis as a believer. It's foolishness, right? It's foolishness. Do you want to be made more holy? You want to be more like Jesus. It starts with your Bible. That's the tool that Jesus prays that God will use to change us, sanctify them with your truth. It's as if you went to the doctor and explained your symptoms and he he gave you a prescription. This is what you need. You went and you, you got this prescription filled at the pharmacy and you went home and you took that prescription bottle and you placed it on your shelf. And then for the next two weeks or however long you were told to take that medicine, you just looked at it. Left it on the shelf, unused. Two weeks later, your symptoms haven't gone away, so you go back to the doctor and frankly, you're kind of ticked off because you go back to the doctor and you said, here's my symptoms and he said, here's your prescription and you took the prescription home and you had it in your home and yet you still have the symptoms. Like any of us understanding how medicine works would, would, would realize that that's foolishness. That, that having it doesn't make you better, that, that it needs to be taken and ingested and, and it's exactly the same as so many of our approaches to the word of God. It's not going to change us unless we are in it. And so Jesus prays, Father, use your word to sanctify them. We could spend a lot more time here, but we need to keep moving to Jesus' fourth request. His fourth request is, Father, keep them unified. Keep them unified. And it's here that we return to what Jesus hinted at earlier in this passage. Draw your attention to verses 20 through 23. Verse 20, Jesus says, Father, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. That's Jesus' request. 
He clarifies, I'm not just asking about these men, but on all who would believe in your word. Father, I pray that they would all be one. In other words, Father, keep them unified. Make them one. Keep them as one. How how unified does Jesus desire that we would be? To what extent does Jesus want us to be unified? Well, look at verse, the second half of verse 21. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Jesus desires the unity of the body of Christ. Jesus desires the unity of his followers to the extent that Jesus and the Father are united. If you ever read the Gospel of John, you recognize that this entire Gospel, there's so many times when Jesus references how him and the Father are one. And when he says one, it doesn't mean that they're just familiar with each other. No, he's claiming identity with God. He's claiming to be God. Then Jesus says here, Father, may, may they be one as we are one. This is an inseparable unity. This is a unity that's bonded by identity. That we would be one because of who we are. And who we are is followers of Christ who have believed in the name of God. Verse 23. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. It's, it's completed, finished in unity. Make them one. Jesus prays for that. Encourage us to make every effort, to strive with every effort, to be united, to be united by who we are, to be united by our identity, by our allegiance to Jesus Christ. That brings us to a... Before we go to this fifth one, we need to see this. At the end of verse 23... The reason for unity. Why do we need to be unified? Why is it so important? So that the world may know that you, Father, sent me, Jesus, and loved them even as you loved me. Understand that the unity of the body of Christ is not just an internal emphasis. That the unity of the body of Christ sends the message of the gospel to the world. That if Jesus' followers are unified, that if they are one, that the world sees that, and and here's what they know. Here's what they recognize. This is amazing. They recognize, based on the unity of, of, of the body of Christ, that God sent Jesus. And, and, and that God loves his followers. That, that's what he says in verse 23. That if we are unified, the world will see that and will know Make no mistake that our unity is an evangelistic effort. It is so important. It is so significant. Not just for the health of this body, although that is the primary emphasis, but also that the world would see it, recognize it, and be changed because of it. That brings us to the the fifth request. It's It's amazing. Jesus' fifth request is bring them to heaven. Bring them to heaven. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. 
Jesus knows that he's going to the Father. He knows that he's returning to heaven. And so he says, Father, bring them to me. Bring them to where I am. I want to be with them again. And I want you to see why Jesus wants us to be with him. Keep reading in verse 24. Keep reading in verse 24. That they may be with me where I am. Why? So that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus says in that verse, Father, I want my followers to be with me. I want them to see me, Jesus says. I want them to see me with the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the earth. I want them to see it. Jesus has been telling them. He's been telling them about his glory. He's been telling them about heaven. But, but I think we all know in our inability, the inabilities of language, the difficulty of describing anything magnificent. The ability to describe the Grand Canyon falls short. You need to see it. You need to be there. Jesus is essentially saying that. You have to be there. He's looking at his followers and he's saying, I want you to see it. I want you to see me. I want you to be with me where I am so that you can see my glory with the Father. That is one day the end of every believer in Jesus Christ and it will be glorious. Be glorious. To see Jesus in all of his glory. Jesus can't wait for that moment. And so he says, Father, bring them to heaven. Jesus is looking forward to seeing his followers in heaven. Because he knows his followers will be amazed by what they see. And that's the glory of Jesus. It's the glory of Jesus. That brings us to the sixth request. The sixth request is give them a godly love. Verse 25, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you and have made, and, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus ends this prayer with a summary that he has presented the truth of this message, the message of the gospel. I've made your name known to them. Why? So that the love, verse 26, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them. That's Jesus' end goal, that they would have a godly love. Jesus says that the love that the Father has for the Son would be in them. That's Jesus' hope in his goal for his followers, that they would love one another and love God the way that God loved Jesus. That is a flawless love. That is a, a limitless love. That's a love that we can't even begin to comprehend. And yet that's the love that Jesus desires to see in us. It's a love that we must maintain for one another. It's a love that we must maintain to Jesus. It's a love that we must maintain to the Father. There's motivation to find here. None of this is accomplished in our own strength but only by the grace of God. But with the awareness that Jesus prayed these for us, we find motivation to pursue him, to pursue obedience, to pursue sanctification, to be made more like Jesus because that's his desire for us. That's what he prayed for you.